When we uh, take a look at this passage, I just want us to begin to see a few things as it unfolds. I call this this section that we're going to be looking at the gospel of God. There is in this chapter such a strong and important emphasis on God that I don't want us to miss as we see the other things that are unfolding here. Remember, Remember, as as he came came to the the church church at Thessalonica, Thessalonica, they're they're coming coming there from a place place where they they had had themselves faced great great conflict. conflict. They had had recently been been beaten with rods rods as they they came to preach the gospel gospel in this place. But it it says this. The first thought I want to draw our attention to really comes out of verse 2, and it is this. What is the basis for our boldness? What is is that that, that that thing thing that gives gives us boldness boldness in the the face face of such such difficulty? difficulty. As As Paul and Barnabas Barnabas went out in that that ministry, ministry, we remember, because because we we think think of it often, often, the journeys journeys that they they went went on were not always seemingly blessed and protected. They They faced faced shipwreck, they they faced stonings, stonings, they faced faced imprisonments, imprisonments, they faced faced beatings and riots. riots. It was was difficulty after difficulty, difficulty. trial Trial after trial. trial. Indeed, Indeed, if we we look look at at what was going going on even in the nature of the the early church, the gospel began to go out of Jerusalem to Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost part of the earth because of the persecution that took place. In Jerusalem, in Jerusalem, forcing, forcing the, people the people to go, go out, out with that, that gospel. gospel. So, so how is it that if the gospel itself can bring us punishment, can bring us pain, can bring us rejection and difficulty, how do we continue to find that boldness? Now, what I want us to understand is this. Remember, when the, the apostles began to even preach the gospel in the early days of the expansion of the church, they were pulled in. They were were arrested, arrested. they They were were threatened, threatened. and then the The second second time they were beaten, beaten. and they they celebrated, they They rejoiced that they were counted counted worthy to suffer suffer for the sake of the name. name. So uh, So, uh, when I I want us to consider consider this boldness, boldness, what it it says says here in verse 2, it says it in this way, but though we had been already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, beaten with rods, Many Many blows, blows, the scripture had said. said. As As you know, know, we had had boldness in our God. God. So I ask ask you, you, what is the basis basis for their their boldness? boldness? God God is the basis basis for their boldness. boldness. The boldness boldness is not in themselves. It's It's not that that we can can do do this. this. It's It's not not that they're they're finding the strength in themselves. themselves. Remember, Remember, last last week we considered a few things as we looked back in the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy. And And as as it was the responsibility responsibility of Moses to charge Joshua Joshua to do that that work that he himself wanted to do and lead them into that land. And I want to remind you of that charge back in Deuteronomy chapter 31 verse 6. This was was the charge charge as as he, Joshua, Joshua needed to be bold. bold. It was was given given with those those words words that we're very acquainted with. Be strong and courageous. Do not not fear fear or be in dread of them. them. Again, I want to note Deuteronomy 31.6. Why should you, Joshua, be strong and courageous? 
Why, Why should, should you, you Paul, continue, continue to be bold? bold? Why, Why should, should each of us, regardless, regardless of what the world, the world does and how it responds and how it reacts, why should we be bold? It says this, for it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Verse 8 of Deuteronomy 31. It is the Lord who goes before you. He will be with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Do not fear or be dismayed. Still in Deuteronomy chapter 31, if you go down to verse 23, now, now you don't have Moses charging Joshua. You have the Lord charging Joshua. And he, and he says, says this in verse 23, verse 23 and, the and the Lord commissioned, commissioned Joshua, Joshua, the son of Nun, saying, be strong and courageous, for, for you shall bring the people of Israel into the land that I swore to give them, I will be with you. The basis for Joshua's confidence was what? I will be with you. Even if we were to go back, Moses, when he was told to go and speak to Pharaoh, what was he saying? Uh, but, uh, but, uh, I can't. I, I can't speak well. I, I don't have the confidence. What was? Who made the mouth? Who made the ear? You, you're so worried about what you can and cannot do that, you, that you're not realizing who's sending you to do it. As Joshua gets ready to go across, he doesn't have to think about. Well, I don't know if we can or cannot do this. I don't know I don't if we know can, can or cannot, cannot get, get through, through this, this rushing, rushing, raging Jordan River. River. I don't know I don't if we can, can or cannot surmount or overcome the wall at Jericho. I don't know if we can or cannot. He didn't have to ask that question over and over again. I don't know if we can or cannot. Generally speaking, for most of those situations, it would have been as simple as this. I know we can't. I know, I know we can't, we can't get, get through that river, river. Without, without, without a walkway or a bridge or, a bridge or until it's sort of the dry season. season. I know I we can't get through. I know we can't overcome these numerous people. people. I, know I know we can't break, break down, down that, that wall. wall. But he doesn't he have, doesn't to, have worry to worry about what he can't, can't do. do. And why does why he does not have to be disturbed or distracted by what he cannot do? Because the Lord is with him. And what, and what can, can the Lord, the Lord do? do? Whatever, Whatever he pleases. He pleases. And so this, this is, is the confidence that is to be his. Uh, in, in Joshua 1.9, 1, 9, he, he tell, tell, reminds him of this. Have I not commanded you to be strong and be courageous? Do not be frightened. Do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. When David, also last week we looked, had to charge his son Solomon. To build the temple. Though he had wanted to and longed in his heart. God said nope not you. Your son will build it. This is how he charged his son. In, in 1 Chronicles chapter 28 verse 20. 1 Chronicles 28 20. Then David said to Solomon his son. Be strong and courageous. Do it. Do not be afraid. And do not be dismayed. For the Lord God, even my God, is with you. He will not leave you or forsake you until all the work for the service of the house of the Lord is finished. 
That sounded familiar, didn't it? Yeah, one had to lead them into the promised land. One was building a, a, a temple. Now, I mean, I look at it in that sense, and I'm thinking, he's telling Solomon to build a temple. Be strong and courageous. Now, that doesn't strike me as the most frightening undertaking, right? I mean, to go in against the massive armies that, that are before you in, in the land of Canaan, that's tough. But to take a piece of land and all kinds of things that are already there and build a temple, does that seem overwhelming and ominous? Well, it, it may not, or well, it may to some of us, depending on our background, but here, here's the point that I want us to say. No matter what the undertaking, no matter how seemingly big and impossible, no matter how seemingly pedestrian and ordinary, no matter what the task, we need to undertake it with this reality. We do it in the name of our God, and we know that God is with us. We see similar wording as we jump forward to the book of Hebrews chapter 13. In that concept of Hebrews chapter 13, in urging us towards that, uh, that life of humility, that life that's not caught up in the material and mundane and even the, the monies of this world, it says this in verse 5 to 7. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said what? I will never leave you or forsake you. So if you don't have much, what do you have? Christ. And if you have him, do you have to worry about what you lack? No. Whatever you may seem to lack on this, in this world, in this temporal context, by having Christ, you have the most abiding and abundant treasure that the world does not even know. And that's why he can go on and say this. So, verse 6, because the Lord will never leave you or forsake you, much like Moses said to Joshua, the Lord said to Joshua, David said to Solomon, and the writer of Hebrews says ultimately to us, to, the, to whom the church, the, this age is entrusted, we can confidently say, what? The Lord is my helper. I will not fear what can man do to me. I like that, I like that there. We can confidently say. There's no wavering. There's no waffling. Why? God is with me. If God is with me, what can anyone do to me? Well, someone might say, well, what they could do is they could imprison you. Well, that's true. They did that to Paul. They could beat you with rods. Yeah, that's true. They did that to Paul, too. They could stone you. Yes. They could spread lies against you. True. Maybe you could be killed, even beheaded. Well, that's what happened to James. That's true. But you know what none of that did? None of that separated them from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. No one could do anything beyond what God had purposed to be done. And so we can say without fear, what can man do to me? No more or less 
than God has purposed for me. That gives us boldness, right? Because as we stand there and preach the gospel, as we stand there and make known the truth of salvation, we do it without hesitation. Now, he reminds them of, in verse 7, still in Hebrews 13, remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God, considered the outcome of their way of life, and imitate their faith. So what is the basis for this boldness? It's God himself. It's God with us, God's presence with us. We see even some sense of that. In Luke chapter 24, the apostles are reminded, look, wait in Jerusalem until the power from on high comes upon you. And many of us have thought and reflected on that remarkable transition that took place when men, even with whatever level of faith they were granted, tried to stand by their own strength. And the difference of a man who is now empowered by the indwelling spirit of God, right? Under his own strength, what did Peter do? As they came to and, and t took and imprisoned Jesus, and as they led him away, Peter followed, did he not? And he went to that campfire out that window. And we remember this event well, don't we? Here is one who stood there, and he, he had told Jesus, that very day he had told Jesus what? Even if everyone else turns away from you, I will not. And Jesus said, oh, actually, you will. And he says, no, I will not, even if I must die, I will not deny you. And what did Jesus tell him? Well, actually, three times tonight. Now, I like to think in my, in, in, in my recognition of my human limitations, I make mistakes. I can make certain commitments and maybe not always follow through. But you would like to believe that when you make a commitment that you're not going to do something, and this commitment is a 24-hour commitment, even really less by the time it was spoken to the time it was done, a 12-hour commitment. How many of you think you could make a 12-hour commitment and hold to it? We would think so, wouldn't we? But what did he do? Denied, you know? Young little lady comes by, didn't you, weren't you? And he denies with ever-increasing vehemence and denial. I did not know him. I don't know what you're talking about. And one of the Gospels indicates that, you know, that Jesus looks out the window and sees him in the courtyard. And now you understand why in that situation it says Peter left from there and wept bitterly. He realized he has not in himself sufficiency. He has not in himself strength. He has not in himself power. That's tough. I praise God that's not where he was left that's not where we are left. Because what happens? They remain in Jerusalem. They receive power from on high. And then what do they begin to do in Jerusalem itself? 
Yeah, they begin to do it. Not, not only are they granted the boldness to not deny Christ in the presence of, of a little campfire and a little servant girl, but they are now granted the boldness to look eye to eye with the chief priests and the scribes and say, we must obey God rather than men. Where did that boldness come from? It isn't that, that they just somehow grew thicker skin. That they just somehow got stronger. It, it, I want you to note this. It says this in Acts 4.13. It says, now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, they perceived that they were uneducated common men and they were astonished, but they recognized that they had been with Jesus. In Acts chapter 4, it said this in verse 29, And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. So, you know what they didn't think? Now we've got this figured out. Now we've done away with fear. No, I tell you, fear makes a comeback. Fear of men is a very resilient reality. One can be bold a, a one time and fall another. Someone can maybe make a commitment to, to do something correctly or to not do something wrong for 24 hours. And maybe they keep that for 24 hours. And they know that thing that they did for 24 hours was a good thing, a God-honoring thing, a God-pleasing thing. Once you've done it for 24 hours, does that mean that you are done with that compromise and done with that sin for the rest of your life? A day of devotion means I'm done with it. True or false? No, tragically very, very false. You may find yourself following the 24 hours of devotion, uh, falling into the very same wrong things that you had sought for 24 hours to deny in deeper levels than you were prior to it. And why is that? Because the strength is not in us. When we look to ourselves, we will not do what is right. When we look at one another, we will not do what is right. When we looked to God, when we lean upon God, it changes everything. It says this, grant us boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place where they were gathered was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Boldness, faithfulness, that's not something that has a quick fix. But know this, that which fixes it once for a day is the same thing that we need to lean upon each and every moment of each and every day. They had, they, here in chapter 4 verse 13, it said they had had boldness. But at the end of the chapter, what are they praying for? Boldness. And at the end of that, that section, what are they receiving once again? Boldness. 
And what is the basis for this boldness? God. Now, what I want us to understand this, their boldness isn't merely in the, I know that I'm right. Okay? By the grace of God, we know that we are right. And the gospel we share is true. Their, their, and their, their boldness is not in, in a simply, I don't care what men say or think about me. The boldness is in God. The second thing I want us to see within this passage is not only the, that our boldness, the basis of our boldness is God, but the grounds of the gospel is God. You're going to catch a pretty strong theme in this message. <laughs> and the theme is going to be a direction and emphasis on God. What's interesting to see here in verse 2, as well as in verse 8 and in, in verse 9, it says this in verse 2. We had boldness in, in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in much conflict. Down in verse 8, it says this. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves. Verse 9 ends by saying this. While we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. <laughs> it's very important for us to, to know that. Now, there, there's a number of different New Testament phrases that are used that are linked together with the word gospel. Okay? Uh, the, most, the most predominant ones are the gospel of of the Lord Jesus Christ, or the gospel of Christ, or the gospel of God. But we also have the gospel of the kingdom, the gospel of the grace of God, the gospel of His Son, the gospel of your salvation, the gospel of peace, the gospel of the glory of the blessed God. But I want us to note this. With all of those references that link to the gospel, only one of them said the gospel of your salvation. Now, I don't want to minimize that. I am so thankful to God for the salvation that is ours in Christ Jesus. But I want us to remember this. It is the gospel of God. The gospel of God brings salvation. But what's, what's strange is too often the starting point is what? Salvation. And the, the ending point is, and the seeming goal is to get people to what? Be saved. The gospel is first and foremost the proclamation of God. Who God is in his character, in his being. The full revelation of God and the fullest revelation of God to man comes in who? The person of Jesus Christ, his son. And in, in the son, we have that full, exact representation of the father. In the son, we have also what? The redemption in his blood, the forgiveness of sin. And so we do find that in the declaration of the gospel, there will be a declaration of salvation. But you can get gospel presentations that are so devoid of God that people are ready 
to be saved. They're just not ready to serve God. They're ready to go to heaven, but they're not amazed and filled with an overwhelming love in their heart for the God of glory. They don't sense the glory of God. They don't sense the majesty and power of God. They have no sense of the righteousness, justice, and holiness of God. They have no sense of the mercy and compassion of God. All of those things that form the basis for the salvation that is ours isn't even declared. You want to be saved? What do you want? A lot of hurt and a lot of pain, a lot of burning forever and ever? Or do you want eternal bliss and blessedness? Which do you want? Well, if you don't want the agony, but you want the good forever and ever, pray this prayer with me. All right? Now, where is God in that? Where is, is turn from these worthless things to the true and living God? Where is the declaration that everything was created by one God? Everything came to, be, to being through Him. He is the one who allots the nations and the boundary. He is the one who determined where is the land and the sea. He is the one who has set forth where is the light and where is the darkness. He is the one who determines all that has been, all that is, and all that will ever be. He is God and there is no other. He will judge and no other. And he has sent his son to deal with sin. And he will send his son again to judge the living and the dead. Who will stand in that judgment? The only hope of standing in that judgment is the forgiveness that is ours by faith in Christ Jesus alone. All that he was, all that he said, all that he did, all that he is. Do you believe in him? I mean, sometimes it's important for us to, to roll it back just a little bit. It's the gospel of God. It's not just the gospel of, of heaven. It's not just the gospel of deliverance. I fear that if we were to go around and talk to a lot of Christians, using the term loosely, and and. Ask them, what is it they're, they're looking forward to? What is it that they're most eagerly longing for? Uh, we're supposed to, for us, that, that eager longing and blessed hope should be the glorious appearing of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. But a lot of people, you ask them, what are you really longing for? Well, I just can't wait to see the streets of gold. You know, I'm just thinking... Streets of gold, how shiny. And, I mean, really? So, well, mansions in glory. How, how many rooms am I going to have? You know? And, and, and probably no dust, no need for vacuum cleaners and all that. Oh, you know, what? what? You know, or I can't wait to see this person. For some, it's, it's, a, it's a loved one that, that is no longer with them, that they, that they miss and that they long for. For others, it's some sort of hero of the faith in the days of old. You know, I've heard men 
standing and preaching say, you know, one of the first things I do when I get to heaven is I'm going to go and find the Apostle Paul, and I'm going to ask him, what? Why would you waste your time with the Apostle Paul when there is Christ? And actually, right now, you know in part, but when you see face to face, we will know even as we are fully known. So whatever it is you were going to ask Paul about, you're probably going to know that already. So all of that is is confusing ideas. Even sometimes young men thinking, well, when, it's, when the scripture gives that description of Esther, I got to see what Esther looked like. Well, the beauty of Christ will so far exceed in its glory any of these, these views that we have here. What's wrong with us? Why would we want to look at a lesser beauty when the greater beauty is there? A lesser glory when the greater glory is there? But I would say this. There are a host of people parading around with the title of Christian who would be very content with a heaven where there's no pain. There's no tears. There's no hunger. There's no sadness, there's only joy and feasts and friendship. It's just wonderful. They'd be okay with an eternity with their loved ones in comfort and ease, with or without God, with or without Christ. No, the gospel of God says, no, I, the, the glory of heaven is in the new heaven and new earth. God shall dwell with men. I mean, that's the, the reality. Our cry should be this. No, it, it doesn't matter who else is there. I want to spend my eternity in the presence of God, in the glory of his being. I could care less about how many rooms in the mansion and the streets of gold and all of the Jasper and Cornelian and all the other fanciful jewels and all those things uh, that, that speak so wonderfully of it. God is what matters. But sometimes we know this. You know what? For most people, God isn't what matters. They need something to fix their daily happiness. Or they need something that, that even if you don't have it now, the earthly treasures that you want, you're going to get it then. And so we, we put as the prize of the gospel the things that worldly hearts prize. Why? The gospel is first and foremost, behold your God. This is God. This is Jesus. And when you see him, what about, what do you think of all the other treasures? No, it's just, it fades in its, in its significance. It all just goes away. The grounds of the gospel, it is the gospel of God, and I don't want us to, to lose that or miss that. 
Even I want us to, to see the focus of this uh, God-centeredness even here in the rest of this, this chapter. Look what it says in verse 4. But just as we have been approved by God or allowed by God to speak. So the gospel is from who? Yeah, the gospel is from God. It's about God. It brings us in reconciliation with God. So is God the heart of the gospel? Indeed. But listen, it says, and he has what? Allowed or approved us to be entrusted with what? The gospel. So who, who does this approving or this allowing? God himself. And we, we, we do this gospel. Listen, what does it say? We speak not to please men, but what? To please God who tests our hearts. Wait a second. So first of all, our boldness is in God. The gospel is the gospel of God where, where God is revealed, where his salvation is revealed. And then further, as we, it is God himself who has allowed or approved us to speak that message. And it is God himself who we are seeking to please with that message. Wow. Now, what, this, is, this is really important um, for a couple of different reasons. Look what it says. Um, if we really get this grounds of the gospel, go over with me. Uh, still in 1 Thessalonians. I'm now in chapter uh, 2, verse 13 says this, we also thank God for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us. All right, so the gospel of God that they preached is the word of God. Because again, it's not something that any of us invent. So if somebody says, well, where do I come up with this gospel? You get it from the word. This word of God that was preached, what does it say? which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. And you brothers became imitators. Now, this is why it's important. Listen to what the scriptures say. Um, in Galatians, Paul says it this way, in Galatians 1, verse 11 and 12. He said, for I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that is preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. And so the gospel that, that, that was received by Paul, the gospel that was received by all of the New Testament authors, where did they receive that gospel from? God himself. So the origins of the gospel, it comes from God. The revelation in the gospel, it reveals God 
and, and the purposes of God and the person of his son, Jesus Christ. But let, let's not be done. Why is this so important? Listen to a few verses, if you would. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, it reminds us of this. Now, it says to the, he says to the church at Thessalonica that you have received this message, that I've shared it with you, and there has been much contention. You can see there at the end of verse, uh, verse 2, it says, to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. The word conflict there is literally the Greek word agony, which I think you can figure out which English word is derived from agony. Right? It, it, is, it is a striving, it is a contention. Now that was going on then. There were beatings, there, there was mistreatment, there was much struggle, but in 1 Timothy we're reminded that things are going to get even worse in different ways. Look what it says in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 to 3. Now the Spirit expressly says... Now, I like that phrasing there. Just wanting, wanting to know that this is, this is not a possibility. This is not a, a, a little likelihood. This is a surety. Says what? That in latter times, some will depart from the faith, devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. Now, that's a scary thought, isn't it? For sure. Now, remember this. No one who does that ever steps forward and says, listen, I'm getting ready to teach you some teaching I learned from demons or what I've received from deceitful spirits. See, what the deceitful spirits have done is they deceived that guy. And he is sharing it Possibly with full conviction and full commitment and full belief. But he's wrong. Because what he's holding to is not something that God has given. It's come from another source. The importance of the gospel, the importance of all that we do is we don't listen to secondary sources. Secondary sources hold no authority. God's word as given by God's spirit through God's appointed messengers held all authority and continues to hold all authority. It says, watch out for these, reminding of them. Some of them would, maybe they'll forbid marriage, require abstinence from foods uh, that God created to be received, received with thanksgiving. By those who believe and know the truth. Ending that phrase, by those who believe and know the truth. That's the contrast with the false teachers. Those who believe and know the truth can enjoy the things that God has provided. These false teachers, they don't believe and know the truth. Second Timothy chapter 4. says this, and this is such a powerful warning, as Paul writes to Timothy, Timothy has been, been faithfully trained, but here's the reality, 
as Timothy serves, you need to be continually reminded of these things. It's just so easy to compromise. It's so easy to fall back. And so uh, Paul writes to Timothy here in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1 to 5, and says this, I charge you in the presence of God. That's a pretty strong charge, isn't it? Because at what point will Timothy not be in the presence of God? Okay, there's no point. So this charge has absolute permanence, doesn't it? And not only does it have permanence, but I charge you in the presence of God, is not God the one who has all authority and all power? I charge you in the presence of God, but he extends the charge even further. I charge you in the presence of God and what? Of Christ Jesus. Oh my, the Father and the Son. And just to, to be aware of the one who you're being charged in the presence of, as it includes the Son, listen, who is to judge the living and the dead. So how you do or don't meet up to this charge, there's an answering. There's a reckoning. <laughs> oh, so is this pretty serious? Yes, it's pretty serious. It, can anything be more serious? In the presence of God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by the appear, His appearing and His kingdom. I mean, that which is promised, that which is sure, that which is powerful, that which is permanent, on the basis of these things, I charge you. What he's about to say must be something pretty important. What is it? Preach, proclaim, declare the word. Is that different than the gospel? We've seen actually that's synonymous with the gospel. The gospel of God, the word of God. Because everything the scriptures reveal concerning who God really is, that is good news. That is glad tidings. All of the warnings the scripture gives, it is good news that we are not only to turn from those, but by grace we are enabled to turn from those things. The entirety of the New Testament indeed is good news. All the truth of God is good news. But listen, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. So, I mean, that's just a simple notion there. There may be, there may be times where people are really receptive and there's no problems. When people are receptive and hungry and interested, what should you do? Preach the word. When people are disinterested, not motivated, could care less, and kind of bothered, what do you do? Preach the word. Wait a second. That seems so different than so many multitude of books that have been sold. No, you can't just preach the word. You got to get your finger on the pulse of the culture. You know, you got to understand the postmodern, the post-Christian age and mindset. You got to blah 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 blah. Whatever. Here's what you got to do: preach the word. You know what you don't need to know? Every little detail about everyone's personal deception. 
What you got to know is the word and preach the word. Because that's it. Romans chapter 1 verse 16 tells us what? I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Because it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first and then to the Greek. So if we stop preaching the word, if we stop preaching the gospel, you know what's no longer there? God's powerful means of bringing about salvation. Is there any other means of bringing about salvation? No! Well, I, it doesn't seem to be working. Well, listen to me very clearly. Nothing else will work. There is no other means of salvation. There is no other message of salvation. You don't mess with it. You don't, you don't melt it down. You don't water it down. You don't substitute flattery. You don't twist it. You don't distort it. You preach the word. And here it says the, it, this way to Timothy, reprove, rebuke. Now it's interesting that it starts with those two things because those are some of the least popular things to do. Because reprove and rebuke is not, you, is not the same thing as coming alongside somebody and saying, you know what, we're all right. You know, we're all right in our own way. What? We're not all right in our own way. When you reprove and rebuke somebody, you basically are saying this. You're wrong. Your thoughts of God, wrong. Your hope of salvation, wrong. Your opinions about what happens when we die, wrong. But we get to jump in and say this. My own thoughts and my own feelings and my own opinions, they were all wrong too. Okay, so it's not just that you're wrong. We, get, we all were at once a part of the wrong club. Reprove, rebuke. It, when you, you have so many circumstances now where, no, 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 that's, that's, just, that's just too negative. We just need to, we need to, we need to package the gospel in a positive way. Wait, wait, hold on a second here. Did you just say package the gospel? Or we don't package the gospel. We proclaim the gospel. If your gospel does not include reproof and rebuke, you know what you've not done? You have not preached the gospel. If your declaration of the word does not improve correction, you know what you've not done? You have not preached the word. Now, lest we get confused, look what it also says. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. Now, why is important? So there is exhorting, there is encouragement, there is teaching. So, so some of it is instructive, not all of it is correcting or condemning some of it is guiding and encouraging and exhorting and instructing but why is it so important that we do this verse 3 for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching but having itching ears they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions 
It says that there is going to come a time where people will prefer preachers who will tell them what they want to hear. Say it like I like it. Well, that's the way that it's going to go. And it says this, to suit their own passions, to tell them what they want, to, to make them feel good. And will, verse 4, turn away from listening to the truth. And wander off into myths. But as for you, always be sober-minded. That is, be that fixed, single, sure-mindedness. This is what you're about. You don't let people push you this way and that way. You do the work of an evangelist. And what is his work of an evangelist going to be? Declaring the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel of God. That unshakable, unchangeable gospel of the word. Oh, it is, it is a message. Again, I want us to note there, back in that passage, verse 4. Approved by God and entrusted with the gospel. It is something that we have been entrusted with. It is, it is something we did not devise. It's not something we developed. It's not something we contributed to. It is all of God's revelation, and He has entrusted it to us. And we take that, and we make it known. The same kind of thing that we see when Paul is dealing in 1 Peter, I mean in 1 Corinthians concerning himself and Apollos, as people were dividing over different things, he says, look, I planted, Apollos watered, God gave the increase. Neither the one who plants or the one who waters is anything. Why are you making so much of men? If you're, if you're so enamored by these, the message of these particular men, then what's going on? Because all men should ultimately be saying the same message. The message that's given by God. Because one is watering, one is pouring... Uh, and one is planting, what is pouring water, but God himself gives the increase. And I always remind us back on that. Was God not also the one who was giving the seed to the sower? Hmm. And was God not the one who's giving the water to the waterer? So the source of all those, uh, uh, the source that the sower is using the seed that God himself has supplied, the water is pouring the water that, God himself has supplied. The, the sower cannot sow if he doesn't have seed. The waterer cannot water if he doesn't have water. Well, brothers and sisters, we have that source of seed and water in endless supply that we can continue to give and give and give. But we've got to make sure this, we are giving the seed. Sometimes people get nervous because they say, look, I, I'm giving the seed, but I, I don't see any fruit coming from it. I don't, see, I don't see the grain. I don't see the effect of it. So, I, you know, I don't know if maybe I need to plant a different seed. No. You plant a different seed, you grow a different weed. Right? It, it does not get you what you want. Sometimes you, see, you don't know whether you put that seed onto the path or whether you put that seed onto the rocky ground 
or whether you put that seed onto the good soil. You don't know that. You spread the seed. God is the God of the seed. God is the God of the soil. And we leave all of those things to him. And then I also want to draw our attention to uh, there in verse 4. So we speak to please God who tests our heart. Look at verse 5. It says this in verse 5. For we did not come with words of flattery, as you know, or a pretext for greed. God is witness. So even, again, all that we've come to do, who's the witness? Hmm. Who's given us the gospel? Who's the central revelation in that gospel? God. Who, who is the one who's entrusted it to us? God. Who's the one who has allowed and improve, approved us to take forward that message? God, who is the one we strive to please? God, who is the witness of all that we do? God. Wow. Now, just in uh, some sense of closing. Yes, you there to take that lightly. Now, I don't want us to miss this. Because there can be a misunderstanding. We, we stand before God. It is ultimately He that we are trying to please. But listen, our overarching care for the pleasure of God does not mean that we are callous towards our fellow man. Okay? We have a boldness when they are callous against us and hardened against the gospel, we are bold to persevere. But, it, but the idea isn't this. I preach to please God. I preach in the sight of God. I preach God is my witness and I don't care about you. Whoa. And I don't care what you think. I don't care if you agree or disagree. No, you should care. The, the, the priority of a passion for God in the gospel and God's pleasure does not, it's, it's not an either or. Either pleasing men or pleasing God. We will please God at the expense of pleasing men for sure. But our love and care for God does not mean we don't have anything left to love and care for the people. So I want to I draw your attention, if you would, in here to verse... Um, Verse 6 reminds that we're not even seeking the glory that's from people, though we could have made demands, but we were gentle among you, verse 7, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children, verse 8, so being affectionately desirous of you. Okay? They haven't come with flattery. The goal is not to please them. The goal is to please God, but they still... So long in their hearts to see these people saved. We see the same thing in Romans chapter 10 where Paul speaks of his own longing and desire for his kindred according to the flesh. That they would be saved. I don't want us to, to think of this. There are, some whose, there are some whose passion for missions seems to be all about people. You know, and, and, and sometimes their passion for missions is only a particular people. I remember missionaries a, a long time ago uh, meeting some who were missionaries 
to India to North Delhi to Muslims. Whoa, that got pretty narrow. And that's, that's the burden I had. Well, come on. The, the gospel needs to go to the ends of the earth of every nation. And, and, but, but modern missiology has, has, has sought to uh, put a passion for people and particular people. No, our passion is ultimately overarchingly for the glory of God, but it can and should be accompanied with genuine affection for our fellow man. Look what he says further here. Not only that, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God. So when we come with this, it's not, it's not just, here is the gospel of God. This is truth. You are error. Take it or leave it. I'm out. Really? That's not what he did, That's not what he did is it? It is, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also ourselves. And so Paul would often come to places and he would labor, sometimes a year at Antioch, sometimes three years. The period of time would, would be really determined by God's providence and purposes. But he was ready wherever he went to share not only the gospel but of himself. To give whatever energy, to give whatever love, whatever strength, because look what it says. Because you had become very dear to us. Listen, because we love God above and beyond all else, because He is our highest affection, our highest praise, our highest adoration, does not mean that people are not dear to us. It's not that we're so filled with love for God, we just don't... Don't have enough left for others. Here, here, here's, the, here's the rich reality. See, for those of us who have, by the gospel, been granted to see the glory of God in the face of Christ, God is so easy to love because he's glorious, he's powerful, he's merciful, he's patient, he's perfect. All right, I look at you. And maybe you're looking at me, and you're thinking, he ain't perfect. And you're right. And he ain't powerful. And you're right. And he ain't too patient. And you're right. And you, you, you could go on with all of my limitations and all of my shortcomings compared with God. But here's the, here's the rich reality, is that we become dear to one another. Not that we're deceived into thinking every one of us is perfect and make no mistakes. No, make no mistake. You make mistakes. All right. That's, that's an absolute given. But here, here's the richness of this. We love God. It's, it's, it's all about Him. He is the highest priority. It's to please Him. It's without compromise. It's without adjustment. He is the witness. It is His glory that we're seeking. But in the midst of all that, that godly concern and godly devotion that does not separate us from being dear and near to one another. And that's important. I think that's an important balance that we need grace to maintain. 
There are churches on the one side that become seemingly heartless in terms of their, their mutual love, but, but they have a, a high standard of orthodox doctrine. And you have others that have a very low standard of doctrine and devotion to God, but they are just amazing socially, you know. This is my prayer, this is my plea that God would grant that we would be all of those things. Not 50% to God and 50% to man, but that we would with our whole hearts be given to God and that we would, in the overflow of our hearts, give ourselves to one another. I'm not going to put a percentage on that. But I just wanted to end this message by, by drawing that attention. That God is the highest priority, God declaration is the highest passion, but that does not make us distance from and, and callous and careless about others. They're deceived as to who, who God is. Even we might think of brothers and sisters in Christ. You think, there are people who are gathering today in a multitude of different gatherings and different buildings, hearing all kinds of different things. Is the word of God being declared? Are people being reproved? Are they being rebuked? Are they being corrected? Is he being exalted? Are they being instructed? Is that going on? And we should care. God, do this work among your people. We need to pray for the people of God. We need to pray for the lost sheep that are out there wondering. And it's not enough to simply pray for them, but pray that God would direct you to them. That you might declare what? The gospel of God. Because what does it do? It's the power of God unto salvation. So much more we could say and think, but th that gives you enough to begin to digest and consider. Let's pray together. Lord, as we um, just close out this session, having really just looked over certain things, the scripture reminds us here about the centrality and the priority of God. Lord, of your person, of your word, and of your work, which includes your salvation and grace. But Lord, let us not soften, let us not oversimplify, let us not tw twist those things that are necessary and true. Lord, the rich reality that people would come to know who is God and who is Christ and that they might know him and love him and be found in him who is eternal life. Lord, help us uh, to overcome the prevailing patterns of preaching a salvation that is, is light on God and heavy on love. Lord, let us set forth the God who is both judge, who is righteous, and who in love sent forth his son. Lord, let us declare the whole truth without shame. Let us de declare the whole truth regardless of men's response. But Lord, let us declare it in order to be approved by you. Let us declare it in a way that's faithful to the gospel that's been entrusted to us. But Lord, let us not simply declare it with words, but May you grant us also to give not only the gospel of God, but to give of ourselves. Lord, if our hearts, because of the hardness of this world, have become hardened towards 
those around us have become callous. We pray that you would soften it, that we would, even as, as you worked in the heart of the Apostle Paul here and at, at other times with Titus and Timothy, that you would put into our heart a sense of the dearness to your people. Lord, that we would have an affectionate desire for them. Lord, I pray that you would continue to stir up that rich fellowship and love within this body. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.